Greetings and welcome to this special outside broadcast edition of Lave Radio. What you're about to hear was recorded live at the Inside Games Showcase event held by BAFTA at the Tobacco Docks in London on the 12th of March 2014. The event gave members of the public a chance to get hands-on with a wide range of highly anticipated games from some of the industry's biggest studios. Frontier were there showcasing the latest build of Elite Dangerous, complete with stations demonstrating the Oculus Rift. David Brape presented on the current state of development, and afterwards kindly stopped by to talk to the late radio crew. John, Alan, Chris and myself are all in attendance, and we will be bringing you our thoughts on the event and the newly released Alpha 3.0 in the next episode of Late Radio. Please forgive the quality of the audio and enjoy the content. So um, today I want to talk a bit about uh, Elite Dangerous. Um, hopefully, most of you have already seen it uh, down on our stand, which is exciting. Our first ever public showing of the game. And for me, it feels great because it feels like, you know, how the world has changed. The, uh, the difference between, the distinction between developers and publishers is now such a narrow thing. Um, that feels good. It's the freedom to do what we like here. And uh, that has been given to us by a lot of people. I know a lot of people here, a lot of people here are backers. So uh, thank you very much for that. That's given us this freedom, which is wonderful. Right, so um, I, I imagine a lot of you know who I am, but the reason I put this, and don't worry, it's not going to be dull PowerPoint for the whole thing, it's just this slide, in fact. Um, so I've been uh, in the games industry for a frightening 32 years, uh, and the industry has changed every single year throughout that period, it's tra- changed dramatically. This year is no different. I'm CEO of Frontier, which is fantastic, because it's enabled us to do what we're doing. We have mature tools that we've been working on for a very, very long time, and all of the games we've done use those, um, going back to games like Dog's Life in uh, 2003, all the way to um, last year, uh, Zoo Tycoon. You know, other games like Roller Coaster Tycoon 3, you probably know, still selling well, very, very good for us. But now Elite, and Elite is obviously what matters here. So, some of you may have seen this trailer, but I'll show you. Just as a straw poll, uh, who here played the original Elite? Excellent. <laughs> Who here played the Frontier but not the original Elite? Excellent. Interesting. And so, have you, you've all seen Elite Dangerous, yes? Has anyone not seen Elite Dangerous yet? Okay, a few. So, okay, so maybe some, some of this might be new to you. So, this is the uh, trailer that we went live with, but just really to set the scene. Um, so this was footage taken from the multiplayer Alpha 2, so I'll just turn it down a little bit. Um, showing all sorts of mechanics in the game uh, that we've seen um, for the first time in the Alpha 1. And what I want to do today is talk a little bit about things in the game, why they're the way they are, and how we've tried to balance it, and the, you know, the, the background to this. But the key thing that has been enabled by a lot of the people in this room is we are writing this game for ourselves and that's great. We're not writing it for an imagined audience. We're not writing it for, oh yes, it's teens age, this group in this country. We're writing it for ourselves. And by ourselves, I mean the people at Frontier, the people backing. A lot of the questions have been put to the alpha backers and there's there's a fantastic two-way dialogue which has been great for all of us at Frontier and hopefully great for you people who are backing the game, and also um, of the alpha backers who are already playing it. So here's um, some more video. This is actually, um, some of this is actually taken from things that you will have seen, which is uh, uh, Michael's dev, dev diary talking about some of the things in 
the second alpha, but also gives me an opportunity to talk a bit more about some of the things in the game and why the decisions were made to, to go the way they were. So what we wanted was the game to be able to be picked up and played by someone who played one of the original elites and get a great fun out of it. Or for someone who hadn't played the game at all and to really engage with it. But once you do engage with it, that there's more and more to discover and that you can get that extra little bit of sort of return from the game, if you like, by investing the effort. So one of the examples is here on the right. You see um, this here, the, the power distribution. You know, seeing there, the guys put um, all of the power into the engine, so you get better performance, you can catch the other guy, but you can also switch power into the systems, which are things like the shields, or into the weapons. And little things like that were also used to categorize the AIs that you're fighting against. Um, so a, a trader AI won't use power distribution, they won't do all the, the, the subtle settings that they can do to tune their ship, because that's not how they work. It also gives the player a better edge. Now, another thing is that um, in a game like Elite, where, let's face it, piracy, assassinations, all those things, are generally bad for the victim. And in a game that supports player versus player, combat, that would be a very, very bad experience for most players. So most of the ships you meet in the game are AIs, and that's absolutely intentional. And so we have this concept of the Pilots Federation, where all the player characters are members, and all the non-player characters, all the AIs, are not. And much like a, a union or whatever, the Pilots Federation cracks down on people who kill its members and puts bounties on them. And what this is intended to do, and we're already seeing it in the Alpha, is it, it cracks down on people who are just hunting players, because that's a very bad experience for the player being hunted, especially if the player doing that is very experienced and the, the victim is inexperienced. So the point with that is to be a natural balance. So you get a bounty on your head, but not only that, it also means that you become a target for all the other players. You know, it is then allowed to attack you, and so it should be self-balancing. We've already seen vigilantism in the alpha, and I thought that was very interesting, some of these emergent behaviours. But it's also good, uh, you know, that we, what we're trying to do is structure the game rules, and we, to, to get the balance right, that's where the alpha and then the beta are going to be important. So we can make sure we don't disincentivize it too much, because obviously player versus player kills are interesting occasionally, especially if the player is somehow notorious in an area and becomes a known pirate for, for their behavior. So other mechanics, which um, I talked about in, uh, in one of the dev diaries, but just to illuminate it some more, is, is this rich, trying to get this rich behavior. So that, um, for example, how you equip your ship, which we'll see in a little bit later, is important, um, depending on how you intend to play. So I've never liked games where you select, oh, I'm going to be a, a troll, I'm going to be an elf, I'm going to be a human from a menu, and then that railroads how you behave. I much rather choose how to behave myself by my actions and opportunistically do a little bit of the other things. And so one of the things, I can make that easier with my sort of various build-outs for the ship. So um, I'm also very conscious of the science side of it. What I think enriches, look at the film Gravity for example, it, it, it enriches the world that you're participating in if you try and make things as consistent as possible. So in, um, in the Elite series of games, if you like, there's one big lie, and that's hyperspace. And unfortunately, 
we need that to make the world work. But other than that, so we don't have artificial gravity, there are a lot of things where you know, conservation, momentum, and all that sort of thing do apply. Gravity we get by rotating things, because I think that's what will happen. We're not, even if you could, we, people won't waste vast amounts of power making artificial gravity when you can just rotate things. But that very much determines the design. So, so the space, station space stations rotate, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But the, the thing I was going to mention was heat. So on the space shuttle, it's a real problem, heat. You, you've got to vent it into space. In a combat situation, the other problem with heat <coughs> is it's, it's radiation. It's very, very easy to detect. So the, the point with the scanners in, uh, in the Elite series of games, they're based on electromagnetic radiation, including heat. Um, and the more you kick out, the more visible you're going to be. So the, the corollary of that is the less you kick out, you can actually be stealthy, especially if there are things to hide behind, like asteroids and things like that. Um, so we put in a lot of game mechanics to make that practical. Um, what we've said is, um, for example, the, uh, the Gatling gun on the right here, um, a machine gun doesn't actually, it gets hot, but nothing like something like a laser, which has a big power system behind it, which gets very, very hot indeed, and generally needs liquid cooling. Um, the beauty with a Gatling gun is they can be designed such that all the heat is carried away in the bullets. So they actually, you know, so the point is it doesn't heat up your ship. So actually it's a very stealthy weapon because sound doesn't matter. Um, whereas other weapons, like lasers, have much more heat. So if you decide you're going to have a devil-may-care attitude and I'm just going to get hot and people can see me, that's fine. But you can do weapons which actually are probably not as good, like the Gatling guns, but enable you to be stealthy. And so we've extended that. Um, you probably see uh, that in the ships, for those who've played the Alpha or seen the video, there are all sorts of uh, slats that open up, and the ships flare white, throwing out heat as they overheat. When you fire up your hyper hyperdrive, which you can now do in the uh, Alpha 3.0 that's coming this week, um, <laughs> makes you very, very easy to detect. Also, it alerts all the other players in the area that someone's spinning up their hyperdrive and basically running away. So all of these mechanics all interact in a really interesting, really exciting way. Um, you can button up, which I think is the, for me is the equivalent of holding your breath, because you can't do it for very long, because all the heat's stored internally. But there are things you can buy, which you can buy in the Alpha 3 now, um, called heat sinks, which jettison. They, they become very, very hot, very bright things, where all the heat is transferred into that, and then jettisoned out of the back of your ship. So we're seeing already with the Alpha, we still haven't balanced these relative to each other. But all these different mechanics coming together, and coming together in different styles of play. So um, various things some of you may already have experienced in the Alpha 2. You see here the mechanic for aligning a cargo scoop with a bit of cargo. So that just helps you. This is the, the blue reticule on the left, so that you can scan and pick up cargo. Um, so you can already um, pick up cargo from ships, from wreckage, you can target individual parts of ships, like the cargo bay, if you know where to look, and shoot at it, and get the cargo to come out without the ship necessarily being destroyed. So, um, and now, in the Alpha coming this week, you will be able to sell that cargo and use it to upgrade your ship. So we've now got a gain loop, if you like, um, or, albeit in its early stages, albeit without trading and some of the other elements. But it's really coming together, and I think, for, for me, that's amazing. It's great fun, and people can cooperate to make that happen, because of course it's all it's all multiplayer. Now the other thing about the world is it's set in an amazing galaxy, which we haven't really seen yet. So um, 
Moving on to the next thing. Now this is, you will all have seen this, this is the original tra uh, trailer. But it gives me an excuse to talk a little bit about the world. I'll turn the sound down a bit. Uh, who hasn't seen the original trailer, the one I'm talking about? Two people, oh, a few people, okay, I'll put it sound by on. <coughs> so just to explain, what's happened is, um, this tells a little bit of a story uh, about um, a message that's sent out from a big warship, a big battle cruiser that's in trouble. And there are two battle cruisers duking it out over this planet. But the story behind it, and this actually applies a lot to the game, is throughout the galaxy, the galaxy won't stay put. We'll have places, um, so what this is, this relates to is a world which is using um, slaves, mining, and things like this. So an oppressed world that has, has had an uprising. And it's in the process of that uprising now. Now players can join on either side. They can weigh in on the side of the oppressors to bring forces in. Because these are all independent systems. They've not got huge militaries. The militaries are largely mercenary militaries. And you can join on either side. If you join on the side of the oppressors, then if enough players do that, the oppressors will win. The rebellion will be put down, and things stay as they are. But if the oppressors lose, what you'll see is a planet becoming independent. You will see the price of the resource they're mining skyrocket, and probably the price of the parts for your ships skyrocket as the ore that comes from it goes through. And I think that's a very, very interesting social experiment. You know, how will that play through? How will um, people react to that? I hope people act on the side of the oppressed, but I have a sneaking suspicion <laughs> people, people will go on the side of the oppressors to keep the prices down. But what is interesting is, is how that unfolds and how that works, because what if the rebellion does succeed, we can then have the adjacent worlds going, oh, okay, we'll try that. You know, um, and a, a, a sort of Prague Spring in, uh, in, in the game. There were a lot of other things um, I've, I've talked some about with this um, as well. Again, what we're showing here with these two um, big ships is, is, is very different mindsets. With the, um, the Federation, the Federal Battlecruiser, which is the one that wins in this encounter, um, is very much set around the, the ethos of, um, if you like, present-day America, the whole, um, and we've, got, we've taken the naming very much that way, where things are very practical, they're, they're, they're what we would understand, if you look at, say, a, a US aircraft carrier today, it's, it's um, form over function, it's not very beautiful. Um, versus an imperial, um, if I just sort of play that again, sorry, I was, wasn't, oops, you didn't see that. <laughs> okay, um, but I'll turn the sound off. So the imperial ship, the ship on the other side, was put together with a very different design ethos. It's what would the empire, which is a very different society, where money is no object, it's super, super rich. Um, there's pride in elegance. These things have a different function. These ships are essentially mobile embassies, so they've been made beautiful. If you, so if you think of um, what Imperial Japan or Imperial Rome might have done in, the pre in this, sort of this future, that's how we've tried to look at it. So if you look at the design, the ship on the right has some very strange features that you've probably not seen in a sort of science fiction world like this. The idea is this um, cylindrical arrangement is rotating. That's to give artificial gravity. Because one of the things in space when ships are stopped or are in an orbit, um, yes, you could move around in zero-g, yes, you can have magnetized shoes and things like that that 
give you a lot of the effect. But if you, for example, sneeze or spill something, it makes life a misery if it just floats around. You sort of see that in the, um, the International Space Station today. But you rotate things. You don't even need to rotate them all the way to 1G. And suddenly, you know, you can have a bath. So many things, you can eat food from a plate. So many things become more comfortable, more luxurious. So this is what a, a Roman emperor might have to go around. It's comfortable, at least for the officer class, who will live in this rotating space. And that's why the design looks so different. You know, it's something that's opulent. It would have red carpets. It would be amazing. Whereas the federal one will be very much sort of white, clean, bulkheads, lots of visible metal. You know, it's a very, very different ethos. And what we're trying to do with the game is make sure that the whole, this is a science fiction experience. It's not just a game, it's you feel the world. You can feel the different mindsets. Um, much like in Imperial Rome, slaves have rights. So if you're a slave actually in the empire capital system, it's probably not that bad. You, 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 you become a slave for a period of time. In Imperial Rome, people would voluntarily sign up themselves to buy themselves out of debt. I thought that's an amazing mindset because that is a very different, it's almost like indented, indentured labour rather than what we consider to be slavery now, which gets you know, terribly, terribly abused. But I think the point really is it's exactly like signing up to the military. And so signing up to be, this is the, one of the parallels we're, we're looking at from the world. Anyway, sorry, moving on from that. <laughs> now, one of the problems is I find very, very excited by a lot of the things, the, the, the subject matter, and how it affects the game. So um, I do tend to rat hole on this. Now, this was the little bit of video I showed briefly. Um, some of you hopefully have seen it already, um, but this is the first peak. Uh, this is in Alpha 3. You will be able to play this, those who are Alpha backers, this week. Um, but this is a space station, so this is lots of sort of swooping shots over it. And just talking a little bit about this, obviously there is a retro element to this, this uh, Coriolis station. Um, but we've thought carefully about it. So the outside of the system is rotated at a speed that will give approximately one Earth gravity when you're inside it. And so the outer areas where the gravity is high, if you think of them, looking at underneath it, it's almost like downward facing penthouses. Some of the most desirable space is going to be these tower blocks that essentially are upside down because gravity is on the bottom. But you'll be able to see the planet below. You know, it will be amazing spaces. We thought carefully about how it's made, how it's made in space, so that the initial beams are made, because you will be able to see these being constructed. And then gradually, and ultimately in time, you will be able to do this sort of thing. Um, and we have lots of, anyway, there's a whole separate set of topics there. But as it rotates, this gravity, people will be able to see out. But inside that, you will have a big open space. Um, because the other thing with space is if all you're ever seeing is narrow corridors, people would go stir crazy. So you'd have green space with trees in it and artificial light. Because the other thing with uh, elite, the elite world is power is not a problem. Because in the game design, if you think of how fast these ships accelerate, and it means that energy has to be virtually free for that to be possible. Therefore, if energy is virtually free in that context, it's, it's virtually free to be able to put powerful lights essentially is as bright as the sun inside. You can grow plants and things. And then this inside space, this sort of glorified toilet roll in the middle where the ships land at low gravity is also valuable. Because one of the great things, that's at what roughly 0.1 gravity, 0.1 g. 
which means uh, a person could just about lift a ton comfortably over your head. So you could lift, one of those cargo canisters is designed that a person could manhandle it in 0.1G relatively safely. And I, I think it's, it's that sort of thing where you're actually making use of the, um, of the opportunities that it offers. And of course, the gravity here, it doesn't take any power because you just spin it up and it stays spinning. That's the great thing. I mean, maybe you might have to adjust it slightly. So what this is showing is various bits and pieces of docking um, and how you get directed to landing pads. You've got to ask for permission and things like that. Obviously, out at the frontier, there will be no asking for permission. We have, the, we have a type of uh, space station which was seen on the title page of this presentation, which is made of rock, where in the future, by that I mean in the game, you'll be able to buy a very large unit carrying the very biggest ships, but which you attach, attach to an asteroid, it melts the asteroid, inflates it, and then you've got a crewed space station. So it's that sort of thing where we're trying to think how these things are made, as well as um, how they work, and then of course you rotate it, and you've got somewhere to land, and it's, it's, a, it's a really exciting thing. So, just looking at that, so moving on to the next one, which is uh, showing docking. So this is just uh, video continuously. So here, first thing you've got to do is uh, select the place that you're docking here, so, uh, and get permission. And um, what you can see is as you look around the cockpit, some of you will see uh, also playing with things like Oculus Rift. I mean, one of the interesting stats, by the way, is nearly 10% of the alpha backers played on Oculus Rift. I was amazed at that. It was one of the things that we were asked for as well, um, prior to going live with the alpha through the Kickstarter and subsequently through the forums. Um, and of course we did it, because I think with all of us, we love tech, and so why not? You know, Frontier, we've got our own tech, so we can use it. Um, but it's an interesting experience as you look around the cockpit, and it, we've got two Oculus Rifts here, if anyone wants to try it. They're still the uh, prototypes, the developer versions, and I think there are others coming. And also there are rival technologies that we will also support um, coming through. So what you're seeing here is, is uh, putting down your landing gear. Uh, you saw flying in through the slot. You see this amazing space. You can see a copper on the right. There was an anaconda I saw earlier. Um, you'll be able to see those. So it's allocated a different uh, a landing bay, so you see as you gradually approach. The, uh, and then the scanner is replaced by this aid to help you line up. One of the problems with Frontier is you never knew when you were exactly above the pad. And you ended up doing really stupid things like landing crookedly. So hopefully it's easier with this. Personally, I still think it's a bit difficult, so we will tweak it. Um, one of the things that we may do, for example, is change the control when the landing gear is deployed. That's one of the things that Frontier did. We, we, we might not need to do it, because one of the problems we've got at the moment is being PC, there are a proliferation of controls. Um, you know, all the different joysticks. Some have absolutely masses of buttons, some have fewer. Um, I, I really like the ones where they've got lots of little thumbsticks, so you've got multiple sort of either D-pads or analog sticks that we can assign functions to, or you can assign functions to. Um, but I think what's good is we're, we're gradually learning how best to do that. And obviously, we support keyboard and mouse. We support uh, key, uh, control pad. And uh, if there are other things people want to be supported, things like Oculus Rift, obviously, we will add those over time. So that's, um, that's docking. Um, but what this does do also is it opens up. You, you saw on the previous video, sorry, I was, um, I was going to mention it when it was at that right stage, but you saw also how outfitting works. So 
as we're designing the game, we are also thinking about how we go forward with this. Because we have said you'll be able to walk around inside your spaceship, you'll be able to board other ships, you'll be able to get out, walk around the space station, and ultimately land on planets and walk around there. And do things like big game hunting and things like that. But for the, for the first release, we're looking about how we do this. So this pad area, you're going to be able to get out of your ship and walk around. This is pressurized. So there's air there, so the sound changes. I don't know if you, you will see that in Alpha 3. You may have, um, for those who are doing it, it, so it sounds different. But also, we've got to be aware that when you're outfitting the ship, we can't have people getting in the way. Because that would just be an absolute nightmare. So what you do is you select, when you select outfitting, your ship gets taken down on a lift, not in like a modern carrier, <coughs> into a space where people can't walk around. And then things will come out and fit pieces of equipment, change it over, uh, potentially even add thing, big things on the outside of the ships, uh, without us having to worry about the collision detection and squidging player characters against the ship. Um, so we have we have been thinking about that. There are obviously there will be things that we get wrong, but hopefully um, we've got that sort of path through that's sort of not problematic. That we will be able um, to get working. Now, as you go through the shields here the sound changes such that it becomes echoey, it becomes inside the system where you're actually hearing the sounds, whereas outside it's created by the spaceship. That's what we've said, which is a slight bit of fiction because we feel, um, we felt you needed the sounds. We initially went through a round where we were creating exactly what you'd hear, and you'd hear almost nothing other than your engines, which actually becomes quite dull. Um, so. That's where we've looked at the science. So actually, no. And our modern aircraft, for example, does tend to create a lot of noises to draw things attention to the pilots. You know, we've added voice, which is coming in Alpha 3, where it tells you things because some of the things you just need to alert the player to a lot. Others are less important. Um, and using voice is, I think, a good a good mechanic for that. So overall, with the game, there are a huge number of different aspects to this that we've got to do, from the surfaces of planets to creations of solar systems and how they work, you know, the, the whole geography of it, as well as the, um, the uh, as well as the political geography, if you like. And then the other the other layer is that we will have people continuously tweaking the galaxy depending on player behaviour. So almost a sort of um, godlike behaviour. So right. There, be, there is now a famine here, <laughs> and uh, people sort of coming in and dealing with that, because of course that means the price of food goes up, the availability of food is right down, but it's a great opportunity for players. And seeing how people react to that is something that I'm extremely excited about. And I, I think the world of this, and you know, obviously players can also get involved and, and things that they want. We, we're going to reserve areas of the galaxy, and that's really not a big um, a, a big deal because when you think of a, a, an image of the galaxy the size of this monitor, probably all the action from other games would take place in one pixel. You know, so it's not like the, there will be areas we'll carve out for future things that we do know what they are. We just won't necessarily have them all in the start. And I'm, I'm sure people will discover where they are throughout the world. Okay, so. That's where we are with Elite Dangerous. I'm very, very excited about where we are. Hopefully, other people are. The, the response today has been brilliant, and thank you very much, everybody, for coming. And I'll move on to uh, questions and answers, if that's all right. Hi there, Chris Forrester. Um, Hi, Chris. Looking at the, the docking scenario you had there, it looked very much like there was an anaconda on the pad. Yes. Is there going to be a size limit? I mean, are you going to have beluga 
uh, passenger liners being able to dock, or are they going to sit outside the station? Uh, so, yes. <laughs> uh, so, um, there is something called a Panamax ship. Um, I don't know if people know what that is. But the uh, Panama Canal is a big restriction to trade today. And a Panamax is a ship that is six inches either side on the Panama Canal limiting docks. And it's almost like you've blown up a balloon inside one of the locks, and that's the size that a Panamax can be. And so um, we have that concept as well. So there, there are three biggest ships in the game. The Beluga that you mentioned I'll, is the, has sort of fins on the top. Those fold down, and it will fit through. But you've got to be a good pilot. <laughs> uh, and similarly, there are, there are two other ships that are, they just fit. Um, and uh, there are various other things that we've got planned as well, because it, it, it's on the height. It, there is enough for them to go in and out side by side. So there, this is sort of half the docking bay. But we will also have stations which have just one. So yes, that's how we, and any ships bigger than that, and that, those will be the biggest ships in the initial release of the game. Clearly, the battle cruisers that you've seen, they're essentially space stations in their own right. If those want to come to visit one of the stations, they will stay part nearby and smaller vessels will go between. The other thing is that ships can dock without a space station. So ships will be able to dock to each other. That there is a standardized docking bay and there will be some sort of umbilical you'll be able to connect. Um, so we have um, thought about things like that, but there is that limiting factor is the biggest ship that will dock, and the docking bay is standardised. Uh, but there will be over time. We may well have player ships that are bigger, but there is another issue that kicks in as well, which is um, the direct control versus executive control. Um, because I think even an anaconda is a bit heavy. To, you can't really dogfight in it. You end up having to use turrets. So our expectation with those ships. And there are others that we haven't talked about yet that can carry ships as big as a Sidewinder. And they can launch them. So you still have the dogfighting experience, but you don't have to equip it with things like a hyperdrive so you can put many more weapons in it. So even though it's a Sidewinder, it's a sort of uber Sidewinder. <laughs> okay, next one. Anyone on this side? Uh, Peter Martinko. Um, throughout this, you've shown like. Um, a fighter dog ship, dog fighting ship. I was wondering how the bigger ships, how the turrets would work and how they're designed and so on. Okay, so um, yes, there's a whole raft of ships. The, the smaller ships, as you say, fixed weapons, you can dogfight. Uh, you've also seen elements of gimbaled weapons. So a gimbaled weapon is a sort of turret light, if you like. It's, um, so on a, a particular mount, if you have a class 4 mount, you can fit a class 4 weapon, which is a weapon that is just big enough to fit the mount. I mean, it only just fits the mount um, and is very powerful. But you can choose to fit a class 3 weapon, where there's quite a lot of space around it, and a gimbal mount, which has about, I think it's 20 degrees of latitude, and it will auto-aim, in. so there's a slight toe-in. And that is actually very, very powerful. So if, especially if, if you've got a lumbery ship, it means you can essentially cut the corner. And a class 3 gimbaled weapon can be more powerful than a class 4 weapon in terms of how many shots it actually lands versus the power of the shot when you're landing it. And then you can go two steps down and have a turret weapon. 
On a sidewinder, it's no point. It's just confusing. But the, we also have the concept of turret weapons where they will auto-fire. So you get an auto-fire weapon. You would be able to control the turrets, but actually you can have several turrets that all separately auto-firing. So on the bigger ships, like the Anaconda and others, they would have very big turret mounts, and they're actually then quite powerful ships. The Anaconda has, has, and the other ships have some blind spots where even if they've got turrets top and bottom, if you're in behind the engines, there's actually a, a narrow zone where you can attack and then come up on out of sight of the turrets. But, but that's intentional. It makes it fun from a gameplay point of view. Okay, next, I think this gentleman was, yeah. Uh, Chris Harris, um, do you have any concepts of crew? Because um, I know some of the earlier shots, it looked like for your Anaconda deck, it looked like you had a couple of seats there. Yes, and I think we've, um, I think we've got a sneak peek as well that we gave out last week, didn't we? Showing a multiple seat cockpit. Uh, anyway, um, without, I'm oh, sorry, just checking because I'm, I'm not sure. I, with all these things, I don't know exactly when things go live. But anyway, the point is, uh, yes, there, there are multi-seat cockpits. Um, we do intend for the concept of, of players working together and things like that. Um, there are a lot of complexities that we've got to get right first before we can roll that out. But that doesn't mean we're not designing the ships with that in mind. You know, certainly um, the really big ships, you expect to have a crew. And there, there will be a concept of crew. How we roll that out and how automated it is and when those will be players, we've, we've not exactly mapped out. Two and then one here, I'll come back to that. Right. Hello, uh, John, uh, Crash from the forums. Uh, I've just been wondering, how deep do you think you can get the procedural generation? I know in Connectimals you had things like uh, individual blades of grass that were uh, generating things like that. And what things are you excited about doing with the procedural generation? <coughs> so, I'm always hopelessly ambitious. Um, there is no reason we can't go that deep, really. Um, for me, it's the richness and it's, it's avoiding the sameness. Actually, for natural landscapes, you can do an amazing amount with procedural generation. Um, it's, it's when it starts to become where the man-made meets procedural that they can, you, you end up with a lot of repetition being visible. Um, there's no reason we can't go down to individual trees and forests and rocks and things like that. And there's no reason we can't then populate them with weird and wonderful creatures that you could hunt. You know, so, um, but in terms of the procedural generation, uh, I don't know if, did anyone here see my TED talk uh, last year? Yeah, yeah that I, I'm still, it's magic. Procedural generation is cheating. It's, it's really, really good. From a programmer point of view, it's like having infinite storage and infinite performance. Um, it's really great because you just create the rules and things emerge from it. Whether it's all the way down to grass, actually doing things like that is not problematic. You know that um, if you look at uh, some of the landscape creation in First Encounters, you know the, the only thing limiting that was just the, the sheer number of resources you need to make it not samey. So I, I think the challenge is that if everything looked like Earth, then yes. What we don't want that. We want to work out what the the um, dominant systems and the biospheres are. You know, so with all of those things, it will take a while to get right, and that's why we've said that that won't be there in the first release. But that's because we want it to be good. You know, that, um, I am very very excited. That's one of the things that I'm most excited about creating those things because we can learn such a lot from it. 
Um, when I did the procedural generation of systems in Frontier, I did a lot of discussions with the astronomy department at Cambridge. And um, because of the way I was doing the simulation from first principles, various things came out of it. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Is that really possible? And I talked to them and said, oh, no, it's not possible. And there's this really great guy who then said privately, he said, actually, I don't really know why it isn't possible. And so they ran it through their simulation. They said, actually, it is possible. Um, this was to do with uh, planets and the orbits of other planets and also planets around binaries, which are now accepted, but then always told you couldn't have planets around binaries because there were too many tidal forces. But actually, it's those tidal forces themselves create places called Lagrange points, which are perfect for the creation of planets. So a lot of things, I, I mean, I, I love science. I think science is, is fun. Procedural generation and science go very well hand in hand because all we're doing is saying, here are the rules, this is what come out of the rules. Um, and I find that fascinating because I think as we do this, more and more things will emerge and go, oh, wow, so that is possible. And it's also, from a selfish point of view, it means I can explore, even with Frontier, the bizarre thing is thinking, oh, what's here, without knowing what's there, even though I've written the code that generated it. And I think that really excited me. So okay. That might have to be the last, maybe one more, I don't know if see. Hi there, good evening, yeah. Tom Page, um, I'm very excited by Oculus Rift, and I was wondering how you found that it had affected uh, player experience of Elite Dangerous. Um, I think we were all quite excited as well. I mean, I, I think it, it's very clear, just look at the Kickstarter pages and things that are coming through as well. It's not just Oculus, there's a lot of technologies like this coming through. Um, that it feels really immersive. Um, we have our own technology, so it was quite easy for us to add Oculus Rift, and uh, it was, it's a great experience, and uh, I think some, you know, nearly 10% of the alpha backers played on Oculus Rift, and that was a surprise for them, and also the enthusiasm on the forums for it um, was good, but it, it feels very much like something new, and I, I think that's why we all wanted to engage with it. What we didn't want to do is distort the game for Oculus Rift, because the majority of players are still going to play without it. But we have thought in mind, you know, if you look, when you look around, various displays fire up when you look at them in Oculus Rift. And it does the same in the controller, and actually it's a really good mechanic, because that way we can use the same space multiple times. Um, and I think the, the current Oculus Rift is nearly there for me, but the resolution is just too low to be really usable long term. Um, I have tried playing the game for a prolonged time with Oculus Rift, and it does work. And actually, I don't feel sick, which I'm good, which I do in other, it, what I, I find with that sort of technology, it works very, very well for seated play in a cockpit, because it feels natural. Once you start taking something where it doesn't feel well, I mean, there, there's, I, mean you, I imagine you've played the Oculus Rift demos, there's one in a, an Italian sort of house, where you, you, it feels natural to look out over the balcony, but this part of your motion isn't tracked, and it, it doesn't match your experience, and I think that's part, that sort of thing is part of the thing that makes you feel sick, or some people feel sick. And I, I think, and I, I know maybe they fixed that with Crystal Cove. You know, so there are lots of things. I, I love new technology, and sometimes it doesn't quite work. But what I love is the, that exploration. And I think Oculus feels like it does work. All you need to do is increase the resolution, and it's there. Okay. Uh, I think one, uh, probably two more. Yeah. Uh, hello, um, Bobby Brown. Um, unfortunately, I don't know the 
universe in great depth. But I'm kind of curious because you talked about the player's choice and how they somehow have con sometimes have consequences within the universe. I was wondering whether you have like purely Samaritan-based like factions and that like that players can join where they can just kind of go and help people. I was wondering whether you have that within Elite Dangerous or not. I was just curious. Yes, uh, in, in a sense, the Pilots Federation works a little bit like that. And I, I think there will be emergent ones, but there will be lots of things like that where people can go to the aid of other people. Um, I mean, the, the, the consequences you talk about happen at multiple levels. Um, we've got consequences at the individual level where you might come across someone who needs help, and it, the game remembers that, whether it's, if it's an AI, and they may help you in the future. You know, the reputation is a really important thing in games, and it does track that. Um, particularly in geographical areas. So I think what players will end up doing is get, they will have lots of contact in a particular area and they'll build them up and that richness and they won't want to mess up their nest, so to speak, by doing anything illegal. But having said that, they can jump a few systems away, do terrible things, and then come back and they'll be all right. You know, so I think what we will probably see is a lot of Jekyll and Hyde behavior where people are, are absolutely... Um, really good in, in their home area because they don't want to wreck all the reputations they've spent ages building up. And other areas, like they may like dip into imperial space and figure, oh, I don't really care here, I'm just going to blast away. And as soon as I've got enough goodies, I'll go and flog them back where I've, got, I've built up all my contacts for illegal goods or whatever. Um, but yes, I would like to see, we've seen a little bit of vigilantism already in the other people protecting other players. You know, so I think it will emerge. And there will be organisations that you can join for that. Okay, I think perhaps one last question we wrap up. Hi, uh, Vic Stevens. Hi. Almost related to the last question, how are Frontier going to deal with the issue of griefing in multiplayer? Okay, so um, I've touched on that slightly already. I mean, griefing is a very, very big issue. The Pilots Federation is our first line of defence for that, where player versus player griefing attracts bounties. Uh, there will be ways of, um, of reporting other players. But ultimately, also, we have something we haven't really talked too much about, which is um, we will get play to be with your friends list as a, a priority. We can also, if people say, I don't want to play with this person, we can use that as a key thing for the sorting. Because we do have the concept for each location of not necessarily showing all the people who are there if you like, a kind of sort of sharding, if you like. Um, and we can use that to stop that. Because I think that the, the problem is a small number of griefers can spoil the game for a lot of people. Uh, but we can also track it. And so that's something that we want to try and get right during the beta, where people who do behave badly, we can just sort them out. Ultimately, they will only ever see other griefers. And then, for me, that, that seems fine, because actually, they're probably the people who, you know, they're going to grief each other, and that's fine. They probably enjoy that. And if they grief the AI, that's what they're there for, you know. So, <clears throat> that's the first line of defense. The second line of defense is we have police in the game who we can make as powerful as we like, <laughs> which is also good. Um, you know, because one of the things we're concerned about is what if people just start opening up inside the space station? Um, you know, so we can have, and we already do now, inside the space station, have powerful weapons. But we want to see what people's behaviour is. Uh, the powerful weapon, we can make sure that it takes you out with one shot if we want. And we just got to balance it so that it feels right and feels fun, but it doesn't wreck all of the other players' experience. Because the trouble is, one guy might have fun letting rip, taking out 20 ships. But if 
those 20 ships, their experience has been wrecked, then that is terrible. So we need to think about how we can do that. What we may do also, we could have shields on every pad that automatically come up. You know, there are a lot of ways we can do it that makes the griefing minimal. And it will be a learning experience for us. We may get elements of it wrong. There will be people who successfully grief and get away with it for a while. But we will find a way to accommodate that, whether it's sorting them out so that they're not in the same um, sessions, uh, or whether the game cracks down on them. I think it will be a mix of all of the above. Okay. I think that's it. So thank you very much, all of you, for coming. Two seconds, I'll be right back. <laughs>